tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Ah? Uh, my duty car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> <laughs> the Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure film and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove that they are in fact cult-worthy. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio Palacios and this is episode four. Now, Alfred Hitchcock made Psycho in 1960. And after that, it seemed pretty hard to top the infamous Norman Bates as a psychotic, if sympathetic, killer of innocence. Although that classic film had style, respectability, and clout, there is no denying that it opened up the floodgates for a myriad of copycats. Some of them good, some of them bad. Movies like Peeping Tom, Repulsion, Cape Fear, but also low-budget features like William Castle's Homicidal, Die Die My Darling, and Paranoiac. Now, taking a page from Psycho, basing its killer on documented true crimes, the 1963 film that we are going to talk about today is based on the real-life killing spree of Charles Stockweather and Carol Ann Fugit, a pair of star-crossed, murderous teenagers that terrorized the Midwest of the 1950s. Now, despite being made as drive-in fodder, this film has been growing its cult following for over 60 years, and rightfully so, as its influence has been seen in many a road-based thriller, films like The Hitcher, Breakdown, U-Turn, and Natural Born Killers. That film is The Sadist, written and directed by James Landis and starring the infamous Arch Hall Jr., this is a no-budget thriller that is one for the ages. Now, joining me today to deep dive into this underseen and underrated flick is Melissa of the Good Evening Kitties podcast. So, let's wrap this up and jump right in. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the show. I am here with Melissa of the Good Evening Kitties podcast, a podcast dedicated to tales from the crypt. Melissa, welcome to the show. How about you tell us a little bit about your podcast? Hi, thanks for having me on here. Yeah. Uh, the Good Evening Kitties podcast is basically a recap and kind of like um, review over all the Tales from the Crypt episodes. There are seven seasons from 1989 to 1996, as well as five other movies that kind of go along with the Tales from the Crypt name. Uh, so I go through each of the episodes and kind of do a recap. I put in audio clips, go through the different episodes, you know, talk about the puns from the Crypt Keeper and, and all that stuff. And then for fun, sometimes I also throw in some horror movie reviews because I love horror. So I just do that. But yeah, I just, I've been doing that now for a little over four years and I'm almost done with season six. So I got about one season left to go. And then what? And then I'm taking a break. <laughs> are you going to jump into a different series or are you going to... Maybe go back and figure out what else you could do with uh, Tales from the Crypt. Well, in the beginning, I thought 
I would maybe jump onto like Tales from the Dark Side or something. Oh yeah. But I think I, th- I think if anything, I'll just end up doing probably more of a horror movie thing or jumping on other people's podcasts for now. Awesome. Uh, to do certain things, but uh, yeah. So I think I might just take a break. And there's a lot of other great people out there too who are putting things up and for Tales from the Crypt and, and things on YouTube and stuff like that. So I mean, it's there's there's other opportunities for me to still talk with other people about the show and things like that. So. And you and I talked about it for a second. It's not really on any major streaming services right now. You either have to own the DVDs or like you said, there's some people who put it on YouTube that look pretty good. That is worth kind of a revisit. Yes. If you look out on YouTube, you can find a lot of them. Um, even my my buddy, Jonathan from CryptTube, if you look up that on YouTube, he's been putting out a lot of 4K restorations of the episodes. Nice. So those look pretty good. And then, um, yeah, so there's a couple of people. I mean, most of the time you find them, um, the, either the the visuals off a little bit you know but the sounds okay but yeah there's a couple two or three people out there who are putting out there but the main thing is um the fans of tales from the crypt are just kind of pushing either hbo or netflix or someone to like put it streaming somewhere or at least review like release a blu-ray or something of it right now it's just dvd it's crazy that pretty much every hbo series is on hbo max right now but that one which is like one of the defining series of hbo's history isn't on there yeah there's (laughs) been a lot of there's been a lot of distribution rights and things like that that have been discussed this year though i think this past september they had kind of a breakthrough in that so i mean we could be looking at something maybe i was hoping maybe this like halloween they might set something up to let to release something if they can get things cleared i don't see there really maybe really being another show because that was what they were also talking about in the Mm. past that they would bring it back and have like M night Shyamalan do some of the directing for it and things like that. But that pretty much fell through a few years ago. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I I just think it should be streaming somewhere. It should be for sure. My two favorite episodes and I don't think I've seen all of them. I grew up with this show. I'm old enough to remember it being on HBO and being fortunate enough of a kid to have HBO. My favorite one I remember was, I think it was called what's cooking with Christopher Reeve and Judd Nelson, where they have the diner, that ends up serving like roadside stragglers. And then the one that Robert Zemeckis did after he put out Forrest Gump, where they face swapped uh, Humphrey Bogart on a character. Yes, that and one's it was called You Murderer. You Murderer. And it was like shot in first person. I remember it being really, really cool. And I watched clips of it on YouTube. I have to go back and find that one again because it's been years since I've watched it. But that was that was a great one, really ahead of its time. Yeah, I have that one coming out soon. It'll probably come out this month because it's season six, episode 15. So I haven't got to it yet. I'm going on episode 14 right now. But Uh-oh. yeah, I did recently watch that one. And it's definitely different. It's different. I remember I had like John Lithgow in it. And I think Sherilyn yeah, Fenn. Um, yeah, and Isabella Rossellini. Oh, that's right. So it was kind of like a throwback to Casablanca with her mom, Ingrid Bergman and Bogart. Yeah, it was really cool. I have to go back and watch that. So we are here today to talk about 1963's The Sadist. The Sadist is coming to this theater, to this screen. The Sadist. A human volcano of unpredictable terror. Rejected by society. Twisted with mental anguish. Tortured by complexes. Man or monster, sane or insane, but driven to shock and kill. Giving only of his own driving passion to torment and twist the innocent, subject them to animal misery and kill. 
from the front pages flash to the screen with all the shock of a gun blast comes the most suspenseful, terror-stricken motion picture in years. The Sadist is coming to bring you the most terrifying 90 minutes ever seen to this screen. Now, when was the first time you saw this film? I think I watched it probably in the the first time was probably in the past five to ten years. So it, I think what happened is I got one of those collections where you get like fifty old right. movies of horror movies, and I was looking through to look to watch something. And I like a lot of creature features and things. And I think I saw the title The Sadist, and I was like, Ooh, what's that going to be about? Even though I've learned that watching some older movies that sometimes they give it a real extravagant name that has nothing to do. Mm-hmm with the plot like i recently watched one that was called like the torture chamber of dr sadism and it really was it was nothing really like i think they were just trying to like get people in to see right you know and um yeah so i went and watched that and at the time i was like oh that was really good like i liked you know how that was and stuff and then when i saw you were wanting people to talk about that movie possibly i was like yeah i wouldn't mind you know visiting that i mean all i really remembered at the time before i rewatched it was um just arch hall jr running around going hey mister hey, hey mister that's all i ever hey, remember big man yeah same that movie's been in public domain for a very long time and i kind of saw it the first time almost in the same fashion i want to say that i saw it on just one of those late night public access tv shows and i only caught it halfway through and then I heard someone talking about it on a podcast saying, oh, it's on YouTube. It's everywhere because it's public domain. So I went back and just rewatched it. And I think I rewatched it maybe three or four times since then because it is extremely influential to so many movies that came out in the future. No one ever really talks about it because it was a low grade B movie. It was super low budget. And I think for many years, people really mocked Arch Hall Jr.'s performance as being really campy, really over the top, which it is. But when you go back and watch it under a different set of eyes, it's almost brilliant how he plays it. He is no more campy in this than Anthony Hopkins was in Silence of the Lambs, and he won a Best Actor Oscar for that. That's true, yeah. Because there are a couple parts in the status where it's almost a little over the top or it's a little comical, but I mean, I see he is, he's doing a very good job. Yeah. He's doing really good work. If anything, I'd say the person who's doing the least amount of work is Judy, his little, his little cohort, his little girlfriend. (laughs) I mean, I don't think they gave her any lines on purpose. She just pretty much sits there and giggles the whole time. So pretty much. So a little background on this film, you know, it was uh, written and directed by a guy named James Landis and he did mostly TV stuff. He did some twilight zones. He did some, um, Colgate B Theater, you know, all those 50 and 60 kind of like after the news shows. So this was one of the very few films he actually did. It was produced by his dad, Arch Hall Sr., who was a famous producer of B-movies, most notably this one. And then if you're a fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie Ega about the caveman in modern times, which Arch Hall Jr. is in as well, that all was kind of cut from the same cloth and they were all filmed in like the same three or four year period. I would say for the fact that it is such a low budget B movie, it's got a pretty short runtime. The performances in it are really good. It's directed extremely well, despite the low budget quality of film stock and sound they use. I mean, I think every edition you watch these days, there's just notable film damage from lack of restoration, but, um, It really, it really says something. Uh, what, what do you think about all that? I think it was shot 
really well as well. But yeah, there definitely is some definite like cigarette burns and type. I thought at first when I started the movie, I even like, like I'm, I remember, um, I thought the vocal, the the audio for the actors sounded pretty good. I didn't know if they were actually like miking them straight or if it was just a boom mic, which I think for the most part it was a boom, but mm-hmm. especially the uh, the older guy, he was very clear, like coming into it. And then, but there are a couple parts that I almost, it almost kind of seemed like it was ADR'd a little bit in, but I thought it sounded pretty clear, um, maybe a little mumbly at times, but if anything, what I really liked about it was the location. I think mm-hmm. the junkyard and the different cars and just this dusty desert, you can kind of feel how hot it is, even though it's in black and white. And just, that's what I think stands out for me for this. Um, what is the, run- let's see, what's the runtime? I think oh, it's like a five. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, again, it being low budget, there's something kind of brilliant about being a B movie writer who doesn't have a lot of budget location to work with. You have this economy of production and economy of storytelling, kind of like what Tarantino did with Reservoir Dogs, you know, mostly takes place in a warehouse. This takes pretty much all at a service station in the middle of the desert. So kind of like to give a quick synopsis of the film, I kind of did that before we co- did the conversation and I played the trailer. There's a group of teachers. There's three of them. There's Mr. Oliver, there's Ed, and then there's Doris. Uh, Ed is played by Richard Allen. Doris is played by Helen Hovey. And Mr. Oliver is played by Don Russell. And they are on their way to a Dodgers game in Los Angeles. And on their way, their fuel pump blows out and they make their way to this service station where as most of these kind of suspense films start, there's nobody there. And at first they don't think anything wrong of it. They're looking inside the service station. There's still like hot food on the table. I would think, I I would suspect something is amiss, but they kind of just have a Coke and talk about, let's look for a fuel pump and get this car fixed. So much soda is drank in this movie. It makes me wonder if there was a product placement for Coca-Cola or if they just drank Coca-Cola hoping they could get like a product placement eventually for it. I think I read like some of it was Coca-Cola, but some was this other type of cola that eventually became RC Cola. Oh. So like, it's really hard to tell in the, like I watched it on Tubi, I think. It's really hard to tell what the label actually says, but I think that's what it was. So like, maybe they were hoping for a little bit of it, but yeah, because they're definitely... By the end, I'm like, I think I think these two guys are just hopped up on soda. Right. They've had nothing but sugar and caffeine for like three hours yeah. or however long they're supposed to be taking there. And so while they're looking for this fuel pump, Ed is like kind of the more muscular, younger of the two male teachers. He's looking through cars and we get a moment of foreshadowing where Doris, before I even like get into it, probably one of the earliest final girls I can think of in a movie. Mm-hmm. Like if you're if you're thinking about suspense, thriller, horror, She is a final girl for the ages, in my opinion, and we'll get to that. But she starts off really meek and mild, and you can kind of tell that the older guy, Mr. Oliver, is trying to play like uh, Cupid with the two of them. He's trying to hook these two up because he keeps making these kind of old-fashioned comments of, you know, she's a young woman, but he's already calling her a spinster. You know, like, you should hook up with Ed. He's a nice guy. He's a good-looking guy. Is he a nice guy? That's the thing is we don't get enough time with Ed (laughs) before Arch Hall Jr. comes in to find out how good he is. Maybe in 1963, they considered him a nice guy. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting to begin with that the fact that these three, like, school teachers are going to a game all together. Is he, like, is it supposed to be maybe a setup date and and, um, 
is Carl supposed to be like a chaperone or something? Because it just seems weird that these three teachers are like, let's get in the car and go to LA and see a baseball game. Especially when the one woman, the woman, they make a point to be like, she knows nothing about baseball. She can't understand. She hates dirt. Oh, everything is just so, she's such a delicate snowflake, like little flower, you know, what are you going to do with her? So like, why is she going? Why is she she going? You would think it'd be like three guys going. Instead, they bring her along. Yeah. Yeah, so that was my impression. My impression is that Carl is really taking kind of like a role in either Ed's favor or in Doris's favor of trying to get these two together, which is weird because he keeps talking about how happy a marriage he has and he has a kid in college. Why would he be wanting to play matchmaker? I don't, I thought he seemed kind of sweet. I mean, I didn't really see him being creepy or anything about it, but it did seem weird that he like left his wife at home yeah. and his college kids to go on this trip. I mean, he really, really wanted to see this game. Again, you know, maybe with that whole economy of storytelling, they're like, well, we can only fit three characters in this movie. So let's pick the characters that are going to serve us the best. I don't know. You got to have a final girl. You got to have a guy that's a little bit tough and then you have to have a victim. And obviously Carl's a victim, which we'll get to that in a second. There's an interesting moment of foreshadowing, I think, when you see Doris leap back because she sees the skin of a shedded snake by the tire of the car that Ed is working on. She jumps back. He's like, oh, this time of year, the snakes are are sleeping in the dark and they've shed their skin. And then she jumps again when she sees like a water hose out of the out of the car that he's fixing. An astute film watcher will be like, oh, okay, there's something to do with snakes in this film. Yes. Yes. I had kind of like I remember I remember the snake part. And then by the end of the movie, I was like, I remember that's probably going to come back. They wouldn't point that out for some reason. Like I hadn't seen it for a while, so I kind of forgot. And then, yeah, I love when it kind of does a nice like callback uh-huh. to the beginning. I'm like, okay, there is a reason they brought that up, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah. Just the way they set her up to be like this. She keeps screaming all the time. Just just like shrieking at everything (laughs) at the littlest things. You know, like I said, this movie is pretty quick. So it's not long until we are introduced to our two villains, which are Charlie Tibbs, played by Arch Hall Jr. And Judy. Uh, Marilyn Manning. Marilyn Manning as Judy. And... Arch Hall Jr. jumps onto the screen with like this squint in his eye and his coiffed hair and a pistol. And he starts delivering his lines in like this kind of cross between a Jack Nicholson, Clint Eastwood, and maybe a little bit of Jim Carrey in there. Like his delivery is so original. And I'm trying to like communicate this to listeners who wouldn't be familiar with some of the older actors. It really, it really paints a picture, and it really makes a, a, an indentation. You know. You hear that, Judy? We're only school teachers. We don't like school teachers, do we, Judy? Teachers think they're so much smarter than everybody else. Yeah, and it gets more and more as the movie goes on. Because basically what you realize is this guy, Charles, I mean, he's young. And I think Archal Jr. was even younger playing it. I think he was like in late teens or something. And he's also got like, he's got this like underbite kind of chin and this like this very unibrow type eyebrow thing. And, and a very I think square he's head. Cute. I think he's kind of cute. I like the coif hair. Yeah, I, I think but, that uh, uh, he 
I think if he was making different films with like a different personality, he was a musician too. He really kind of had that mm -hmm. rockabilly vibe to him. So I think if they yeah. would have embraced that more, he did do a movie called Wild Guitar, which he kind of played on that. But again, it was probably just a low budget B movie played only at drive-ins. Didn't get that recognition until years later as people like us are discovering this film on, on YouTube and Tubi and, and box sets. Now, the interesting about this is this is loosely based on the Starkweather Fugit murders of the 1950s. The murderers that uh, the movie Badlands was based off of. And in a way, movies... Better movie if you're wanting a, more of a story about that. A hundred percent. It had a budget and some talent, too. I'm not saying these people aren't talented, but it definitely had... Well, and they were also... I mean, it was ten years later, so it was like they could imply more about Fugit, or her first name, uh, Carly Ann or something. Uh -huh. Um she was only like 14. Yes. So they were able to like work with that more in the Badlands movie. This one, they were like, well, just say she's 18. So, right. you know, we'll make her act childlike, but. They make yeah. a point of it too. <laughs> mm. Yeah. They're like 18. Sorry. And then we see like a little bit of it in Natural Born Killers. And then we see um, kind of an homage to it in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, where uh, Jake Busey and D. Wallace Stone's character when they're younger, they're kind of like a Starkweather Fugit, Mickey and Mallory kind of thing where they're actually making a point where they want to kill more people than Starkweather did. So there's definitely some like pop culture reference based on these actual murders, but this is one of the earliest adaptations of that. I believe that was like 1956. This movie is 1963. So again, like you said, there's you're dealing with censorship boards. You're dealing with certain things that studios didn't have the liberties of in the future that this film kind of had to juggle around. And I think they kind of did it pretty well. But like we said, Charlie Tibbs does all the talking. Judy just kind of sits there and giggles maniacally every time he abuses one of these three hostages. Well, or if she comes up with an ideal, she'll whisper it to him, like in his ear. You know? Right. And they just, every time they come up with because they... They don't know what they're doing. Like the main thing about this is, is he's just going by the seat of his pants. They're just along for the serial killing ride. Like they'll get ideals out of nowhere and just be like, oh, let's do this now. And then they're like, oh, that'd be fun. And then they make out because they're happy that they did that. And then, yeah, there's a lot of making out in the dirt with these two. <laughs> and that brings me to something that I found interesting about the way this is written and the way these characters are developed. And I really didn't catch it until like the second or third act. As aggressive as Charlie is, he's got a gun. He really has no scruples about killing. You kind of realize that he's very insecure about his stature, about his education. You know, when they use big words around him, he starts saying, my teachers called me stupid and they called her stupid and they called us animals. Don't talk smart to me. And then Ed, who's a larger person, he always calls Ed big man. Get back to work. You want that car fixed? You can do it yourself. Starting to be the big man again, huh? You're the big man, Tibbs. That's the name, isn't it? Charlie Tibbs? The big man who killed seven people, made them get on their knees and shot them in the head? Paper calls you a thrill killer. It must be a real thrill to wipe out a family of five. How many thrills have you had since you left Arizona? What about the people here? Did you kill them too? How long do you think you could keep getting away with this, son? The law's bound to catch up with you sooner or later. And the law has ways of handling murderers. Please don't antagonize him anymore. What's going to happen to you? Can if it opens them out again, I'll blow their brains out! Now listen, big man, you get back to fixing that car, you're gonna be a big dead man fast. You think you're so tough, big man? You think you're so tough, big man? Arch Hall Jr. is really short in stature, and I think 
they kind of made this Napoleon complex into his character that I really didn't catch until like the second or third watch as I started like realizing, oh yeah, he is a short guy and his temper is fuming. And apart from like not really being smart enough to figure out how to get out of the situation, he's also got this complex of being short. Well, I was going to say more, more like the, the talking down to it. He, there's really, they don't give much motivation or like mo motive for what he's doing. I mean, he's supposed to be a sadist. He just likes to hurt people and see people suffer and things like that. But it is, yeah, implied that teachers probably treated them badly. And the fact that they're all three teachers, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like he does not like that. And so he's just anything they try to talk to him about. And he can get real nasty, like just some of the way he is acting to some of them and just... I mean, we'll get to it in a second, but there's a couple of scenes where I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah, some, yeah, there's some intense scenes. I mean, and he has like a different perspective with each person that he's being a sadist to. You know, with Carl, Mr. Oliver, the elderly guy, it's more about, like you said, that authority thing. Um, he talks about, you know, Carl asks him about his father and about Judy's father, and he's like, don't talk about them. Obviously, there's some damage there that had been done. And then with mm -hmm. Ed, Ed, it's about stature and toughness because Ed doesn't really back down a lot. He he talks back a lot to him in a way to maybe like rile him up or maybe Ed is just testing to see how serious Charlie really is. And then Doris is just really meek and scared and Charlie really feeds on that to the point where he sends her to go fetch water. Then he gives Judy the gun to watch the other two hostages and he follows Doris to the water pump and essentially assaults her and shoves her face in the dirt and makes her I eat dirt. I did not think they were going to go for that. Like I, cause I had forgotten. I was like, cause I was like, oh, I kept thinking like, oh, if this was made nowadays, this is, this would get probably pretty bad. And I yep. don't need it to get that bad. Cause I understand how bad he is. So it's fine, but I wasn't expecting it still to go as far as it did. Like the, you know, at first it, it took a little bit. I feel like it stalled a little bit in like this scene a little, just like, I think they were really trying to build the tension, yeah. you know, of that she was alone and there's nothing no one can do, anyone can do. And so, yeah, when he puts her face in the dirt, I was like, well, we've already established she hates dirt. Right. <laughs> so it's a horrible thing that he's doing. He puts her face in the dirt and then he gropes her uh, over her, her dress. And, um, and I think I may be wrong, but I thought, I mean, according to IMDb, I think that was his first cousin. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> that I makes it even more that's interesting. What it that's what, yeah, I was like, oh, okay. Because, um, yeah, it was a real quick move, and they kind of pull the camera up. Like, you can't quite see it, but he does it really quick. And she's basically just degraded. Like, she's, you know, by the end, by, by the time, you know, her dress gets all ripped, and then her hair's down, she's all dirty, you know, just all this stuff. So, yeah, there's an interesting cutaway to Judy where at first she sees it and you can like see a glint of jealousy and like she's upset about what he's doing. And then she goes right back mm -hmm. into her manic giggling about anytime violence happens. Yeah, it kind of sits on that cusp of, is it just that she's a child and innocent or is it more of a Stockholm syndrome or is she right. actually really into this, you know, kind of thing. So anyway, before it gets to the point where I was afraid it was going to go, they come back. He gets the gun back from Judy, and we have the hostage situation again. Ed is still trying to put the fuel pump into the car. And the tension starts kind of building from there because it feels like Charlie has to make an example of someone in order for Ed to hurry up and fix this car. And he doesn't like Carl. 
And so Carl does, I think, the one thing that is probably the worst for him to do. He tries to start bargaining and begging. And that weakness really sets off Charlie. Carl offers him $2,300, which is a lot of money back then. And he's like, you could have a lot of fun on $2,300. And nowadays, I looked that up, and nowadays it would be considered like $19,000, $20,000. Like they, that kind of buying power. So yeah, it's a decent chunk of change. But yeah, the bargaining. And I think the fact that he's also like a, a fatherly age, and he's trying to relate to him like at a father-son level, I don't think did him any favors either. Either. He shoots him in the face. And that's one of the earliest examples I've seen that kind of gun violence. I, like We've all seen Westerns. I was but And I read also that there was a, a plan. They actually wanted to do like an early squib shot where they actually wanted to show the bullet hitting his face. They couldn't figure it out with the budget. So it's shot from behind. But even still, it's really emotional and unsettling the way it was mm-hmm. shot and the way it was captured. And the way he just kind of brushes it off and walks away. So you know that he means business now. What I thought was interesting, though, is not that, I mean, everyone kind of has a different, all the three main victims kind of have different personalities and different reactions to how this is going. Mm-hmm. I did think it was a little interesting that, like, I mean, of course, um, the woman, Doris, you know, was hysterical. She couldn't look at it. You know, it was horrible. And I don't blame her. <laughs> <laughs> But the other, the other guy, Ed, he just kept like working on the car. Like right. he looked up and like looked right at it when it happened. And then was like, okay. Cause I think what they're trying to imply too, especially later is like, he's, I think he's thinking this whole time. Cause he's like, there's no way this guy's going to let us get out of here. If I mm-hmm. fix this car, yeah, we're done for. So there's gotta be something I can figure out to, to buy us some time or get us out of here. Another thing I wanted to point out too, that before Carl was shot, Charles took the tickets and like tore them up in front of him. Yeah. And Carl almost had this response. Like he started almost crying. Yeah. And I was like, he must really want to go to that game. Like, but I mean, I know it's also like probably an emphasis on like, Oh, you're not getting out of here. Cause you don't need these tickets at all. Yeah. There's a real you know, finality kind of to it. I think that's when Carl kind of knew like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. And that's when he starts so bargaining. Bargain yeah. Or something. The other thing that I think they kind of mention is that Ed is a veteran. So I feel like he also kind of is desensitized a little bit to the violence and is maybe more capable of keeping his head together during the situation. You know, if you were watching this movie, first and foremost, you would think that Ed was going to be our hero through and through, which I've already given people the chance to watch this uh, on last week's episode. I told them where to find it. So this is the spoiler part of the show, I guess. If you don't want the film spoiled, pause the conversation, jump back in. But... Yeah, as as we realize that Ed has one option, and that is to buy time to figure out what he can do to keep from getting killed right away, because he knows that Charlie can't fix this car. It's up to Ed. Buying time right now is his only thing that he can do. However, they are interrupted by two highway patrolmen pulling into the station. So really quickly, Charlie kind of gets them hidden gets him into the trunk and kind of plays like he is a friend of the service station owners and these two cops who are probably the worst cops in the history of of highway patrolmen okay but you mean okay it's like they're actually cops in real life i saw that yeah (laughs) that they were just like hey you guys want to be in this movie like we have a really small budget and they're like okay (laughs) so it was like they had their own bikes so they're like all right yeah, but this is definitely the the point for me where it really hits the fan, like as things start moving along, because there's this like buildup of all this, like how far is this going to go? Who's going to make it out alive? And then these cops show up and Charles is desperate, like he has to make a decision so he doesn't get caught. And then 
just people start dying. Right. It's essentially like the jumping point into the frantic third act where these highway patrolmen show up. I mean, they show up and the first thing, the the first thing the one highway patrolman finds is the empty the pistol clip. He finds an empty pistol clip on the ground. It's like, oh, someone dropped a pistol clip for a 45. It's like, well, that would be a clue, but let's have a Coke, you know? And then he asks, <laughs> he asks Charlie, he's like, what happened to the guy that runs this place? Like, oh, he's in the back. Or he went and visited some family. He's like, oh, I didn't know he visited family. You know, just kind of. Yeah, apparently it's a really small town. Really small town, population of six or something. I don't know. And so like you said, Judy has Doris hostage. The two start fighting, Doris screams, the highway patrolman gets shot by Charlie. And now Charlie's got two guns. He's got the highway patrolman guns and he's got his gun because he was almost out of bullets. And he's so bullet happy in this film. He just starts shooting bullets off, not even thinking that he might not have enough to finish the job. But now he does. He's got two pistols. Well, even like around that time, around that time too, I think Ed was starting to count bullets because there's that part too where Charles is like, oh, you think I don't know I'm counting bullets with you? You know, kind of thing. Like he's like, I got backup. But yeah, he does get a bit, trigger happy there (laughs) towards the end i think he knows the walls are closing in yeah i mean he heard the radio announcement you know they all know what he did yeah he just starts getting a bit crazy a bit unhinged and so he's like i am done with this whole charade that we're playing we're fixing this car now so doris gets into the front seat pushing the brake pushing the gas trying to make sure it goes through and ed takes a chance and he has the fuel pump pointed right at Charlie's face. And so as she hits the gas, it shoots gas in his face and he instantly just starts starts firing blindly around the service station, not counting bullets, just firing blindly. That's what you want to do when you can't see. He's not very smart. <laughs> <laughs> like if he was just a tiny bit more in touch with what he was doing and less frantic and less of a sadist, he might have gotten what he wanted. But what does he do? He shoots Judy and they have a yep. they have a very brief death scene together where he doesn't really seem to I mean he's upset but it's very very quick that scene I think he's more just upset his his partner's gone you know he had yeah. someone else who kind of understood him who went wrong wrong with what he wanted and now she's gone and it's it's his fault but it's also in his eyes not his fault because he got gasoline in his eye because I think they were also trying to put the gas in the fuel pump to like mess up the car or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, I think it was like so that if he did take off with the car, he would break down. But it's like still, it's not like he's gonna let them leave if they fix the car. Right. Yeah. So I was just saying like that. T- that's what Doris was kind of like. Like, oh, once they fix the car, and, and Ed's all like, they're not gonna let us leave. Like, you know. Right. But yeah. So I took a chance. Took a chance. Like I said, they really at this point. Th- no one has anything to lose but their lives. That's kind of where they're at. There's no gain for anybody other than like not dying. And at some point, someone's going to get shot. This kind of turns into this final part of the third act where Charlie is now just on full throttle, psychopath mode, sadist mode. And Doris actually gets away. She runs off. She's able to make her way into the desert. But before he can go after her, he has to deal with Ed. And this scene was really surprising to me because I really thought that Ed was going to get the upper hand on this. 
Yeah, there's a scene where they're he's chasing Ed that made me kind of laugh where he like goes into this like hallway kind of corridor thing outside behind the junkyard and he's going to run like he's going to do like a jump like Jackie Chan up the side of the wall and then as soon as he does it he just hits the wall and he's like nope that's not going to happen so he turns around and it makes me laugh because I'm like yeah that would be me I'd be like I got this (laughs) but yeah so he's just chasing them all over the place and again Charlie is just trigger happy he's just firing blindly but because of Ed's I can't say it's a bad decision. He did his best. He made his way into that alley. He couldn't make that jump. He makes a final charge for Charlie and Charlie shoots him like five times. And even like while he's shot and bleeding, he still tries to like make that last grab for Charlie. And that really surprised me the first time I watched that. I'm like, oh man, I really thought this guy had him. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't, I mean, he was, I mean, there was a good chance he was going to get shot. He was running straight at him with no weapon. Right. Uh, I don't, think he had a weapon he did um and yeah so i mean i guess he thought maybe if anything he could try to kill him while he's dying and then maybe he can't get to doris i don't know you know but uh but yeah so doris yeah she kicks off her shoes and she just takes off down this desert dirt road with cacti and snakes and scorpions and all kinds of stuff he pursues after her and then it turns into a completely different movie where it's something that i think is like the the genesis of things that we would see in future thrillers where there's a final girl, like they're going from set piece to set piece through the desert in like an abandoned house where they're doing like the, the like now kind of stereotypical Steven Spielberg, be really quiet while you're moving one room to another while the murderer or the, the bad guy's chasing you. There's like a good little minute where they're like doing the suspenseful zigzag through these locations he shoots at her she keeps running she never really gives up which brings us to one of the coolest in my opinion villain endings that i've seen in one of these films from this era you know there's everyone's so used now to like the villain falling from a building or getting set on fire or these endings that we see a lot of villains do this one is different and i'll let you take this one away so Charles is heading by after Doris and she's running ahead. And then there's this like covered hole kind of area outside that they're running by and he falls in and lo and behold, it is a snake den. Uh, not all those snakes were, were venomous, but uh, they are all in there and he can't get out. He can't climb out of the hole and they start biting at him. And he's trying to, sh- was he trying to shoot at them or stab them? I think stab them. He was trying to stab them. <laughs> yeah. He's like slicing at their faces. And it's just like all these like images of snakes, you know, jumping at him and stuff. And so he ends up getting bit to death. Yeah. For one, he can't get out of the pit. And I think they kind of made a point of it again, too, of his stature. He is like literally six yeah. inches too short to reach the lip of that well or whatever that snake pit that he's in if he was just like six inches taller he'd be able to jump grab it and get out but he can't could have even he could have even stabbed the wall with his knife and climbed the knife again not that smart (laughs) (laughs) then we're introduced to like a lot of that kind of just cutaway repeated shots of the snakes I think they use the same shot of the rattlesnake striking at him like five times. Like, I think I counted. <laughs> like, it has him wind up and strike, and then his face shrieking, and then it winds up and it strikes again. But still, it's really effective. She sees that he's yes. in the pit. She sees that he's done for, and she just runs final girl moment achieved. She got really close. Yeah, she just <laughs> walks out in to go get exposure dehydration, 
not knowing which way to I go. Mean, hopefully, hopefully she made it. She was on a road, so it's going to go somewhere. She could go back to the service station and have a Coke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, there's bikes I think were still good. She could probably figure out how to ride one of those. That'd be interesting. I want to see that story. I want to see that, like, yeah. resolution of her figuring out the I mean, I'm going to hope she gets out of there. I mean, she was pretty messed up by the end. But, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, because it was like she got really lucky because right when that car was going to hit her, like, the fuel pump stalled or whatever and missed her. But, yeah, now she's just, like, stuck under the hot sun with no shoes <laughs> walking around. But, uh, but, yeah, it was a really, really cool ending. And, again, like you said, like a, like a final girl type thing. You know, she had to fight to survive, and now she's just – on her own and i mean she still has to survive but at least there's no one pursuing her so with this film some interesting things to it so one of the things that we talked about early on was how well it was shot the cinematography it was the very first feature production that vilmos zygmunt who famous cinematographer he did a lot of spielberger films he did the deer hunter for michael simino he did close encounters he did Black Dahlia for Brian De Palma. I mean, his resume is just amazing. This was his first film um, as a cinematographer. I think he has himself as William Zygmunt in the credits. And like we talked about, the, the scene where Carl gets shot, brilliantly shot and framed. There's a lot of really fantastic tracking shots through the film that were so impressive to me, knowing that this film had like no budget. Because most of the B-movies of this time, you were always dealing with like a stationary camera. You know, you had like wide shot, close up, wide shot, close up. This had a flow to it. This had a lot of great lighting and a lot of great close-ups, especially of Archal Jr. Like every time he had a gun to someone's face and the camera like closed in on his face, you could see like every pore, you could see every wrinkle. It was just a really way to kind of capture that really manic performance. I also liked a lot of the ground shots. Like they had some good ground shots, um, like in the snake den, ground shots when he was putting her face in the dirt. Yeah. Um, just different shots that were kind of, or even like not even at, he was more at an angle, but like when they would shoot Artal Jr., it was to kind of give him this like menacing kind of bent kind of yeah. thing, you know, to him. Um, but yeah, I really liked the way this movie was shot. And like speaking with the performances, you know, we talked about Archal already, but he does have this stance that he uses through the whole movie where he kind of like bends one knee, the other leg is somewhat straight and he slacks his hip. It's almost as if he's in like a permanent quick draw stance. Mm. And it really speaks a lot to his character because I think, and this is me kind of looking into it maybe a little too deeply because he's so insecure of his stature. It's like a power move, almost like you would do to like scare a bear away. You know, he's got this mm -hmm uncomfortable aggressive stance to make himself look like a bigger person than he really is just the overall kind of like vibe of the film we talked about at the beginning i've seen shadows of this movie in a lot of different films we talked about california we talked about badlands we talked about natural born killers but you really don't hear about this movie that much and that's why i wanted to talk about it on this show because it's like it's a classic that should be more cult worthy than it is. You know, it definitely has a following. I, I know it does. Mm -hmm. It should have a bigger one. Well, it's really a shame too, that it kind of ruined, uh, was it, I think James Landis kind of ruined his career, the director a bit after this. Cause everyone was like, Oh, it's such a scandalous, filthy, you know, type movie. So I don't think he really made too much more after this movie. No, he didn't. It was mostly all TV work. And, um, the episode that I did episode two, Two episodes before this one, we talked about a 1965 film called Who Killed Teddy Bear 
by Joseph Cates. And again, Joseph Cates was a TV director. This film was like his only big film, but because it was so, I'm not gonna, I say groundbreaking now, but back then a lot of people just thought it was sleazy and made for shock value that it kind of killed his whole film career and just put him back into the world of TV. When, if you watch that film now, you're like, why wasn't this guy bigger? It's just yeah. was, it was too ahead of its time and just not made for the right audiences of the day. Yeah, same thing as, uh, there's another movie I watched just the other day called uh, Peeping Tom from 1960. Yeah, absolutely. And that was another one where people were like taking it off the out of the theaters after five days or whatever, you know, they couldn't handle it. And I mean, it is intense, but it's not like, you know, I mean, it's. I feel like now it, it it was more just of the time, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, it's very good. And like this movie was made obviously for drive-ins and grindhouse theaters, and and it wasn't given a huge release. It found most of its audience like we found it public access either on a a bootleg DVD or a bootleg VHS or on TV. But now that we've got podcasts, now that we've got the internet. I think that these films, you'll start seeing a resurgence of them for sure. And on Facebook groups and, and Instagram, I'm seeing people talk about these movies again. So it's 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 got a glimmer of hope to it. I do have one quick question about the plot of this movie. Why were there four plate settings? In the station? In the house of the, in the station. That's a good question because we only see two victims, right? And only two of the plates were gone. At first, I thought maybe Arch Hall jr and his girlfriend showed up and they were like oh stay for dinner and then he, they they interrupt you know but they all started eating or like or that i thought maybe they were going to stay for dinner and then they killed the two people and then ate their own dinner after they killed the that two people is a great point because there's also a line in there where he tells judy to go get more of that pie yeah yeah so that's what i was Unless when the cop was like, oh, he didn't say anything about having people over. I mean, maybe they were, but they had the food all laid out with no one else there. That's an excellent so observation. That, like, I feel like they were able to sweet talk their way in, which I don't know how he was able to hold on to his sanity for that. They were able to maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe uh, Judy acted, you know, shy and they were like, oh, come in, come in, you know, got them all seated for dinner. And then Charles was just like, pop, pop. And then they just ate their food. It also makes you wonder who was more of the loose cannon, Judy or, or Charlie? Because it feels like Charlie yeah. is more capable of talking himself out of a situation where Julie kind of just seems like giggle and stab almost. Yeah, and she seems to sit around contemplating fun things for them to do. Yeah. Like excited when he's excited. Like, she'll give him an idea, and he's like, oh, that's a good idea. And she's like, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's what I was wondering, because I'm like, they imply, I don't understand what they're four plate settings unless they already welcomed them into their house. Yeah, absolutely. This movie was actually banned in the UK until 1999. It was considered a video nasty. And I think that's really interesting because there really isn't a whole lot of gore. There really isn't a whole lot of like blood and violence. There's a little bit of blood and most of the violence is either off screen or not really as gruesome as you would see in the 1980s. I think they put this on a list and just forgot to take it off. Yeah, probably. Because even the scene with Carl, when he gets shot in the face, they didn't use that squib. So when they come back to circle around, his face is facing away from the camera anyway, like in the in the dirt. So you never see the effects of the shot to the face. It's right. more just the, the visceral part of that, I think, is just seeing it from the, it's more of kind of like a point of view, but not quite. But you're seeing more Arch Hall's face 
as he shoots and that's when you're like oh oh he just did it <laughs> like he actually just did it right in front of everybody and not that i'm a sucker for violence but that was my favorite shot in the film just the way it was framed mm -hmm. and just the emotional response on arch's face was such a great great moment um so melissa what would you say would be the selling points of this film to someone who's never seen it before uh arch hall jr's performance uh definitely uh the a decent plot i mean it's a good like standard plot that you kind of see nowadays where like some people show up at a place something goes wrong and then there's a survivor you know type situation um it's also like well shot i like the cinematography uh even the accidental music's kind of fun yeah <laughs> in the movie uh but yeah it's just it's a decent like a lot of, a lot of people sometimes when if they're not huge fans of older movies they either think it's going to be too boring or anything like that but i'm like this plot kind of keeps it going it's 95 yeah. minutes it's a decent movie. Like you're not going to really be that bored. And I like to ask all my guests this, what would you pair this with if you were to run a double feature? So I was thinking you were talking about the cinematographer Vilmos uh, Zygmunt. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at some of his cinematography and stuff. Cause I saw, I was like, I like the way this movie is shot. So I was looking at his stuff and I would like to, to double feature this with 1971's McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I love that movie. That's great. That, yeah. Yeah. It's it's very well shot. There's a lot more like like terrain pieces and things that they I mean, they set up this whole village for the movie. Yeah. It's a really fun, like kind of satirical western kind of thing. Um Julie and Christie yeah, and really, Warren Beatty, Robert Altman yeah. directing. And that's one of the things I, I like Robert Altman, but he can be a tad dry as a filmmaker. That's why he always would hire such visually creative cinematographers to kind of like get you in that story with how they're filming the landscapes, how they're filming the set pieces and the scenes. That is a really great double feature. I kind of went a little bit, I guess, standard on it. I, if I was going to watch one roadside thriller, I was going to pair it with breakdown with Kurt Russell and Catherine Quinlan. Oh, great movie. That's a good, a good one. So I'm like, I like yeah, that's eh, a fun movie. you're in a small town, you're in the middle of nowhere. You've got bad guys after you, and you're just a normal everyday person from point A to point B. I kind of figure they complement each other, but yours, I have to say, is more interesting. I don't know that that I have. I was just I've actually I've thought about breakdown before in the past because I watched it a long time ago, and every once in a while I'll see like someone talk about it on Twitter or something, and I'll be like, man, I have to check that movie out again. That was pretty good. Not a lot of people talk about that as like a Kurt Russell, Kathleen Quinlan. It's a it's a fun uh, like like husband wife kind yeah. of thriller thing yeah and i call pretty bad guys in it really bad guys i call yeah. movies like these road noirs like they're just kind of film noirs on the road bad things happen to good people so um thank you so much for joining me on this episode talking about the sadist i hope more people go and watch it it's very easy to see it's on tubi it's on youtube you can probably find it other streaming sites as well. I know it's on archive.org. Um, Melissa, do you want to shout out your socials really fast for all the people listening? Oh yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. This has been a blast. I like this movie a lot. So it was fun to come on here and talk about it. But uh, yeah, if you want to check out any horror movie reviews, or especially if you want to check out anything about Tales from the Crypt, the movies and the TV show, you can check out the Good Evening Kitties podcast pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, my main site's on Podbean. And then I have a Facebook page as well as a Twitter page that's at G-E-K podcast or at Geck podcast. 
Awesome. And I have another podcast. I'm not sure if you knew that just called the cult worthy podcast. I would love to talk about either demon Knight or Bordello of blood with you at some time. So uh, oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. keep an eye open for that email and okay, cool. everyone listening next week episode is going to be 1933's duck soup with Leo of the movies on weed podcast. So you can find that right now on archive.org. You can actually watch all the Marx brothers films there for free. So jump in, watch that. So you don't have any spoilers next week and Melissa, thank you so much. And I will see you later. All right, thank you.